Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that pontificates on issues of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including more offers to reduce the ongoing costs of owning a new car. Rob Fraser and I talk about some seven-seater SUV alternatives. We hear from Sydney University about their recent report on how driverless cars are not necessarily a force for good. We have some motoring minutes and a welcome return of Brian Smith with some quirky news. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. So let's start with the news. Car manufacturers in Australia are looking at more ways to give customers security in the ongoing costs of car ownership through increased warranties, reduced service costs and reduced service intervals. Suzuki will now give a five-year unlimited kilometre warranty and updated capped price service program as of the 1st of October 2019. The service intervals will also be reduced from 6 months to 12 months, subject to the number of kilometres travelled. Up until the end of the year, Holden will give 7 years free scheduling servicing on selected models of their Colorado 4x4s and their 7-seat SUVs Arcadia and Trailblazer. From this point on, people who sign up to drive for Uber must have a vehicle with a 5-star safety rating. But it is not until two years' time, in October 2021, that all existing drivers will be required to have a 5-star ANCAP safety rating or equivalent. Many major corporations, governments, service providers and businesses have mandated the purchase of 5-star vehicles in recent years. The requirements to meet a 5-star rating have increased significantly over the years, but encouragingly, while only 48% of new vehicles in 2012 reached this standard, the figure today is 92% of all new cars. In the latest edition of the Overdrive radio program, we discussed the frustration of trying to work out electronic operational and infotainment systems in new cars. Fortunately, the new 2019 Range Rover Sport SVR, released in the UK, has an app called Land Rover iGuide. Once you have uploaded the app onto your phone, then you can move it around inside the car and point to areas that you need clarification on. For example, move the phone over the side doors and the buttons there will illuminate. If you point up at the sunroof controls, you see highlights on those buttons. All you do then is click on those highlights and it will show you the correct section of the manual. You can download and use the app even if you don't own a Range Rover SVR in testing new cars each week. We at Overdrive have not only struggled to work out how to get into the systems, but we are also frustrated by warning sounds that don't indicate what they are warning you about. Another advantage of this system could be to free up your glove box by not having to have a 500 plus page manual stored there. 
Jaguar Land Rover's CEO, Ralph Speth, has announced that they will close their UK factories for a week in November to guard against disruption to supply chains from a possible no-deal Brexit. The shutdown will go ahead whether or not Britain seeks an extension to the October 31st deadline for leaving the European Union. The company had brought forward its usual August maintenance closure as part of preparations for the original March 29 Brexit date, but the Brexit deadline was again delayed. Disruption to supplies can have a huge impact. Toyota's plant in Derby typically holds just four and a half hours of inventory, so they plan a one-day closure on November the 1st, which they hope will increase the inventory stock temporarily to two days' worth. BMW will also halt production at their mini plant in Oxford for two days starting on October the 31st and they have said they will reduce output by eliminating a work shift in the event of a no-deal split. The current debate raging about eating meat or a vegan diet has spilled over into the car industry. Following pressure from customers and animal rights groups such as PETA, Tesla has decided that their Model 3 will now come with a leather-free steering wheel to match the existing Tesla synthetic material used in the seating. This is not a completely new option. The Model S and Model X have been available with vegan-friendly steering wheels for some time. Part of the difficulty is that it is hard to have a heated steering wheel when the cover is made from synthetic materials. Apparently, if you are so inclined, you can refit your Tesla with a vegan steering wheel cover, but it might test your commitment, as it will cost $820 plus $75 labour. And that has been the news. Often when we test drive a car, we instinctively decide what we like and what we think needs improvement. Rob Fraser has just handed back a Subaru Outback 2.5i Premium. He tells us what he likes most about it. It's no secret that the Subaru Outback is a favourite of mine. The reason is the Subaru Symmetrical all-wheel drive system, which is possibly the best all-wheel drive system on the market. It often comes as a surprise to many buyers, but not all all all-wheel drive systems are created equal. The active torque split system with centre viscous coupling means that as long as one wheel has traction, you can still get progress. Normally, when a wheel slips, the drive system sends more power to the slipping wheel. Not so with Subaru. The wheel with grip will simply continue to drive the car. It's actually hard to understand just how good this system is until you are sitting side by side with another all-wheel drive SUV and it fails to make any progress on a slippery slope while the Outback simply drives uphill. At around a touch over $43,000 plus the usual costs, it represents outstanding value and compares to vehicles often costing $15,000 more. You're listening to Overdrive. We all know, and we've talked about here on Overdrive quite a lot, how four-wheel drives have evolved into SUVs, and it's always hard to know whether the SUV is an off-roader or a soft-roader. Now, the Nissan Pathfinder, a large SUV, has really struggled to know which it is and has ebbed backwards and forwards over the time as to how much it is a hardcore off-roader versus a soft-roader. 
Well, to talk about that, who better than our good friend Rob Fraser, who's an expert in recreational vehicles and off-roading, and he joins us on the line now. G'day, Rob. G'day, David. How are you going? Good. What do you think of it? I actually really liked it. It, it You're right, it's certainly not the four-wheel drive of a few years ago, which was a very capable four-wheel drive vehicle. This one is more in that category of SUV, soft rotor, that can sort of be a little bit adventurous in. Very nice, very comfortable inside. I drove the top of the range one, which is uh, pushing towards $70,000 plus on roads. It has gone seven seats. Is there a strong push for that, you think, in the market? In the SUV side, the the, the soft rotors, absolutely, I think. Mm. Uh, but although I think, uh, I mean, I last week I drove a Honda CRV seven-seater. Right. And this week I have a Skoda Kodiak seven-seater. Okay. And my initial impression after driving both of those, when you compare them to the likes of the Pathfinder, is that some of the smaller ones are uh, definitely for those that are horizontally or vertically challenged mm. in those rear seats because they're just so tight, whereas the Pathfinder actually is not too bad in that third row of seats. I wouldn't sit in them, but it's not too bad for those teen, early teen-type years. What was this Skoda you were driving? Uh, Skoda Kodiak. Tell me about that. Yeah, look, it's, it's a typical Skoda in, in that it's got a lot of bling associated with it and some really clever ideas. You know, one of the, the things I like the most is push-button start. One of the things I dislike most when you jump into different cars is you're looking for the starter button. <laughs> this actually has the starter button where you put the key in. I mean, how clever is that? <laughs> it's actually got a couple of other really clever ideas. For example, when you open the door... There's a little piece of rubber that actually, or plastic rubber, that comes and folds out along the edge of the door. You know the one, the, the thing you always do when you hit the door against brick walls or another car or something? Oh, okay. Not that I do it, but this actually has a fold-out protection that comes out, wraps around the door, and when you close it, it just automatically folds back in again and you close the door. Very clever. And the other thing I like about it is, I mean, I'm 190 centimetres tall. The rear hatch opens well above my head, so I don't have any issue about hitting my head on it like I do in a lot of cars. What's it worth? Well, there's there's a number of variants, and they probably start at about 43000 plus sort of costs, hmm. and they go up to about 53000 plus a little bit, and they actually represent really good value. The one thing that Volkswagen does is they pack a lot into their Skoda vehicles to make them good value. You can get a 2-litre TSI, or 132, I think, kilowatts might be it, and there's also the diesel, which is a 2-litre as well. Now, what are you paying? You're paying about, well, quite a bit more for the diesel. In fact, it's uh, somewhere in the order of $7,000. For those of you that listen regularly know that I am fairly partial to the diesel, and to the diesel sound and to the driving techniques and, and style. But I would actually buy the petrol because those TSI engines, they, they come in very low in the rev range with their um, high torque and they drive like a diesel, but they get really good economy as well. So I would actually go for the petrol. That's a turbo, isn't it? It is. I think that's what gives us its low down oomph. Being a turbocharged, yes. so you don't have to rev the necks out of it. Okay, so a couple of cars... All of them now aiming for this seven-seater. It is a little bit of a parent's taxi image. There's nothing wrong with that to to many people's minds. And if you're going to do it, you might as well do it in style. Rob Fraser, thank you very much for your time. David, thank you. That's Rob Fraser talking about a couple of SUVs being the Nissan Pathfinder, the Skoda Kodiak 
is uh, another example of it. I think we mentioned a Honda or two along the way. The point being is that uh, seven seats is a possibility, but not necessarily a luxury. This is Overdrive across Australia. Without major marketing fanfare, Ford Australia, in conjunction with the Amy Gillette Foundation, is providing free driver training and techniques that are not the normal part of getting your L-plates. David Brown has more details. Ford Australia has announced that its free Driving Skills for Life course will tour Australia for a fifth consecutive year. It aims to increase the use of safe and calm driving techniques, as well as teach new drivers how to share the road with other vehicles and cyclists. One approach is to help drivers avoid dooring cyclists, and is called the Dutch Reach, in which a driver uses their far hand, the left hand for right-hand drive vehicles, to open the car door, which forces drivers to turn their head and look behind them, hopefully to check for cyclists. The Driving Skills for Life is a free course funded by Ford and carried out at six locations around Australia. This is Overdrive across Australia. Honda's a manufacturer that has had a resurgence of late with a host of new cars and designs. At the forefront of the brand revitalisation is the CRV SUV. Honda launched a seven-seat version in January this year, and Rob Fraser has spent a week in one. There aren't many SUVs, especially in that mid-size segment, that I can squeeze my hefty 190cm frame into the back seat with any degree of dignity. The CRV is one exception. I can sit comfortably back there with the wide opening doors and high roofline making for easy access. The boot is cavernous and there is an abundance of front seat room. Honda decided to add two extra seats to this equation. As a seven-seat wagon, the CRV is compromised. The rear seats are definitely in the very occasional category use, and even then only for those that are horizontally challenged. I didn't even try to fit, as the ambulance drivers would have died laughing when they used the jaws of life trying to extract me. Not all cars have to be everything to all people. For a touch under $43,000 plus the usual costs, there are possibly a number of other options that may suit the seven-seat need better. But as a five-seat family wagon, the CRV makes a lot of sense. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, when driverless cars were first mentioned, they were sold or the idea, the concept was portrayed as being motoring utopia where we would all be able to get around and read a book while we're doing it and uh, be able to more travel in comfort. It's not that simple. A recent report from the researchers at the University of Sydney's Business School, more particularly the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies, uh, suggests that it may not be a force for good. And to talk about that, I have on the line Yao Wong, whom we know well and uh, who has done a lot of the research in this area. Yao, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. A pleasure to be here, David. What's the key point here about where driverless cars may cause us problems? Well, I guess I'm going to pick up on uh, where you started the program about this nirvana and this panacea that a lot of the technotypes, if I may, the Elon Musks, the Teslas of the world are sort of been um, promoting over over some period of time. And we're a lot more kind of uh, realist rationalists, I think, um, in, in, in this whole debate. So I think one of the key issues around um, autonomous vehicles is just linked to, I think, the issue of space and what 
autonomous vehicles and the pricing of them will mean in terms of how we use space in uh, cities. Cities are places where space is a very scarce commodity. It's a place of a lot of density. There's only a limited uh, capacity in terms of road space. And what a lot of these autonomous vehicles could mean in the future, because they are driverless, is it can actually replace a lot of the travel that's currently taking place on more spatially efficient modes like public transport, bus and rail in particular then that's going to be a big recipe um, in terms of a disaster causing gridlock on the, on, on the road network. And with all sorts of externalities, emissions, kind of urban form, uh, social inclusion and the like. How much do you think autonomous vehicles will increase the amount of travel without a passenger in there merely to get to the destination to, well, to pick up the person or go from where they've delivered them? This is one of the key issues, one where I think government and governance has a key role to play in actually um, putting some regulation or institutional overlay to actually help this particular scenario that you that is described to help to uh, circumvent some of those issues. So you're, you're absolutely right. It's going to be a case where there will be a lot of autonomous vehicles deadheading with, with no one in them. The typical example you, you can have, you know, some you're taken from your home to, to work and then because, you know, parking is very expensive, the car sort of goes back home or something. And then the same thing happens in the afternoon. There might be other trips and pickups and suddenly something that's two trips become, become four trips. Yes, I think autonomy may well come within very defined corridors, which mm. leads to the point, and I'll conclude here, that you did a lot of work with the bus industry in this regard. Could autonomous vehicles have the biggest impact in public transport through the bus network? How much will the bus network and the services it can provide benefit from autonomous vehicle technology? Autonomous technologies have uh, the potential to be to really um, transform in terms of how we provide public transport by actually cutting the link between quantity of service and its labor costs. We know most of the costs in providing bus services and, and the like is in labor. But I think that is one potential. But I think the more kind of um, realistic kind of potential is because they become so cheap. It actually um, destroys a lot of public transport because people won't be taking uh, large, large vehicles, um, but they'll be taking um, smaller kind of autonomous shuttles or pods and the like. And we already talked um, in, in this session about, um, you know, it's linked to congestion and use of road space. So I think there are a lot of um, opportunities and also realities there. And I do deal a lot with the, with the bus industry. So one of the things we've been, you know, talking about quite recently is with autonomous technologies, what exactly is the role of bus operators in this sort of ecosystem in this future? In terms of what's ha been happening over the past period of time is there's more and more kind of de-risking of bus operators on the government side with gross cost management contracts to become an extended public servant. And equally so on the kind of manufacturer side, these vehicles as a service, these latest buses, you know, the the sort of um, operators, you know, they, they have to go back to the manufacturer for, for everything because they're so technologically advanced, things like the government ownership of assets and the like. So it becomes a case where bus operators, their only value add is really organizing labor. So I think these bus operators have to sit up and think about what is their value add, what sort of risks they are 
best willing to take up, you know, integrate their business vertically, horizontally, transform themselves through what I talked about as mobility as a service to become sort of um, to subcontract, to try different modes, to actually try and tap the other 80% of people that aren't on the, the bus network, to try and transform themselves into total uh, transport providers, if you like. So that's a real challenge, I think, for this bus operator community. Well, many car companies, including Ford and others, have said that they want to be a mobility mm. company rather than just a car manufacturing. I think you've reflected in a very interesting way what it might mean to bus operators as well. Yal, I appreciate your time greatly. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you, David. And that's Yao Wong, who is a research analyst for the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at the University of Sydney. And they have just released a report titled Moving People, Solutions for Policy Thinkers. And it has been prepared in conjunction with the Bus Industry Confederation, but also presented to the Minister in terms of urban planning. This is Overdrive across Australia. Airbags have helped to reduce injuries and typical front and side impact crashes, but there's another area where drivers and their passengers can sustain severe injuries. David Brown reports on a new airbag from Hyundai. The Hyundai Motor Group has developed a new centre-side airbag which deploys into the space between driver and passenger seats to prevent head clash injuries of passengers in the front row. If there is no one in the front passenger seat, the airbag will protect the driver from side collisions. The centre-side airbag is installed inside the driver's seat. The new airbag is expected to reduce head injuries caused by passengers colliding with each other by 80%. According to the European Automotive Manufacturers Association statistics, the rate of secondary damage caused by these kinds of collisions or from hitting interior materials is about 45%. You're listening to Overdrive. And so we come to the end of the program. On the line is our good friend, Brian Smith. Brian, you have a story about a chicken harness. I do, David. Uh, Look, if uh, the old question about, uh, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? Well, uh, this is a much more interesting question. Is it safe for a chicken to cross the road? Amazon is selling chicken harnesses. So they basically look like a little sort of vest that you put on your chicken with a a lead attached to it. They come in many different colours. And so you can walk your chickens, I guess, help to teach them um, the road rules, you know, to uh, look left and right and um, get get across there quickly rather than, uh, you know, pecking their way across. Uh, Do they have choker holes like a dog chain? Oh, no. What is the road safety implication of people laughing (laughs) while they drive their cars? The ones I've seen the photographs of have little bow ties on the front. So, yes, there's a chance that uh, you'll be humiliated, not just for walking a chicken, but the fact that the chicken's harness has a little uh, bow tie on it. Is there a call for this sort of thing? Look, if Amazon's selling it, I believe there must be, or perhaps they're creating a market. Perhaps people are now looking at their chickens and going, oh, geez, they're they're being perhaps guilt-tripped into it, saying, you know, if my chickens aren't in a harness then they're not safe and i guess is it the equivalent of driving with your child not secured in the car 
Is it also a question of free-range chickens? Might you sell better eggs if you've taken your chickens for regular daily exercise? Oh, yes, okay. This is the sort of constitutional argument, whereas the, the cage chickens, perhaps, instead of wearing a harness, they're wearing more of a smoking jacket, something comfortable, like a Paringa dressing gown. <laughs> yes. That could be it, David. Maybe you could... There are dog walkers. Perhaps you could employ chicken walkers to so that you could qualify for the free-range stamp on your egg cartons. Yes, how often would you have to do it? Do they have their own ones? Do they personalise it? Or do you take one chicken and then come back and then just swap the lead? You're asking a lot of questions that uh, I'm afraid this article doesn't answer. (laughs) I can't imagine why. How much do they cost? Look, they cost uh, Canadian $30, which is about $30 Australian. Now, that's not cheap chicken is worth about $30. I think the last chicken I bought was about $30. That's not an eaten chicken. That's a walking around chicken tending to lay eggs. You have some in the backyard, don't you? I do. I've got eight chickens. Yeah, they live in a in a sort of a large uh, enclosed area for them to walk around in. The children would love them. Uh, children love them, yes. They, uh, they go up there and feed them and they all have names. Most of them are named after Star Wars characters, interestingly. <laughs> Um, but yes, they, they all have names and the chickens, you know, kids enjoy collecting the eggs. They don't enjoy cleaning the chicken coop. And so possibly this is an area where harnesses might help. You could sort of harness the chickens and either force them to clean. Or I don't know, if you get a lot of chickens harnessed like this, could it could you put a small wagon behind? <laughs> they could tow. The other issue is do you have to pick up their poop when you walk them? Well, yes, I guess you'd have to have a tiny plastic bag, just like a dog. Now, Brian, you children have that, but that can bring about great trauma if there's a fox in the area. Ah, yes, we've lost quite a few chickens to foxes. That's actually bringing about reality to your children. Someone said that the greatest pet you can buy a child is a hamster because it'll die after about five years, <laughs> and then you replace it. And after the first year, it's trauma and tears. Second year, it's, it's sadness. Third year, it's, oh, okay. Fourth year is, who cares? I saw an interesting uh, article on, on just a tweet, actually. It was where uh, this fellow was saying that his neighbour was reporting that coyotes were eating his outdoor cats. And the fellow said, uh, you know, how many cats do you have? He said, well, you know, I just buy a new replacement shelter cat uh, each time uh, the coyotes eat the other cat. And he said, look, it sounds like uh, you're actually just feeding coyotes cats. (laughs) (laughs) At which point, apparently, the man's daughter started crying. So possibly it's a different way of looking at things. I, I bet you bet don't want your children to hear this story for fear that they then insist on you taking each one of them for a walk. Oh, I know, I know. Well, it'd be good for your health, Brian, but your self-esteem. <laughs> That's right, and I'd be walking them. The children would walk them for sure. And this has been Overdrive. I'd like to thank the Overdrive team and its supporters for this program, particularly Brian Smith, Rob Fraser, Yael Wong and Paul Just for making this show possible. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. 
You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And of course, there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.